thewellnesscouch.com. Streaming wellness into your lives. Download the app today. This is Up for a Chat with your hosts, Cindy O'Meara and Kim Morrison. Here we are, up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Cindy O'Meara. And I'm Kim Morrison. And boy, are we excited this week to have an incredible soul, the amazing Dr. Peter Bruckner. Can we welcome you, you amazing soul, to the Up for a Chat podcast? Thank you for being with us this week, right here, right now. Oh, thanks for having me. It's always good to. Good to chat. Cindy and I have had a few uh, chats over the years and uh, looking forward to another one. It'll be great. Well, before you two start talking, can I just say I attended one of your lectures or a number of your lectures, and I'm pretty sure I saw you speak at Olympic Park in Melbourne in the late 80s. I was flabbergasted with your knowledge back then around sports science. And I think from memory, one of the talks was with even with Karen Inge. Does this all sound familiar to you, Peter? Oh, it does. It does. Yes. In the dim distant past, Kim. Yes. Yeah. I can remember all that stuff. That was my in my previous life as a sports medicine clinician. Yeah. So uh, yeah, they were great times. Uh, we started up a clinic in Melbourne here and uh, a great group of people, including yeah, Karen Inch, who was a dietitian, uh, one of the first sports dietitians around, actually. And um, uh, yeah, we had a great group of doctors and physios and uh, and massage therapists and podiatrists and so on. It was a yeah, it was a fun time, and uh, yeah, did some really interesting stuff there, interesting research, and a very good group. So yeah, fond memories of those days. We go more into that. Do you think you could just take us back a little bit as to how you became so fascinated with the human body and what got you into (laughs) medicine and how did that all begin for you? Oh, gosh. Okay. Righto. Um, Back at school. Well, I guess my my first love has always been sport. Um, I was, I don't know why, my parents are quite normal, but I became quite obsessed with sport, right, from a childhood. And you know, right through my childhood, I was either uh, playing sport or uh, reading about sport or watching sport and so on. You know, I'd sort of be the sort of person who'd sort of uh, turn straight to the back page, you know, before the front page, you know, of uh, the newspaper. And uh, in fact, I thought when I was a kid, I thought, no, I'll know when I finally grown up when I start reading the front page first. But that uh, hasn't happened yet. So, uh, you know, maybe it will one day. But um, so, yeah, sport was always my, my love. Uh, I played a lot of sport. I was not you know, great at anything. I was okay at, at a lot of sports and they got a lot of enjoyment out of it. But I sort of realized that, you know, uh, probably, you know, when I was in my teenage years that I wasn't going to be able to make a living out of playing sport, I better uh, come up with another plan. Um, I actually w- would would have liked to have been a sports commentator. That's what I really wanted to, to be. But my uh, my mother didn't think that was an appropriate uh, appropriate career for her little uh, little Petey. And um, she uh, she convinced me to do medicine, and uh, and to be honest, look, the, the the idea of doing medicine had always appealed, and I guess um, the attraction was that you know you 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 were being useful, you were being helpful, you were helping people, you know, and that that always appealed to me, and uh, I really liked the word uh, useful. I sort of become a uh, it's my new favorite word, and uh, and I think you know certainly as a doctor you can be you can be useful to a lot of people and so on. So. Um, so that's probably what got me into medicine in, in the first place. Uh, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't a particularly good medical student. I have to say, my, my colleagues, would, my friends, would uh, vouch for that. That I, 
I scraped through. I was too busy playing sport and running sporting clubs and, and things like that. That's my other passion is sort of running sports clubs. I've been involved with a, with some amateur, you know, sporting clubs for a long time, and I love that. And um, so I, I did that uh, instead of studying through my meds. But eventually, I got through and uh, got serious about medicine uh, towards the end. And um, so then I went off to. Uh, I graduated, uh, worked here for a couple of years, went off to England uh, to practice on the palms and. Um, Spent a lot of time watching sport. You know, I went to uh, you know to football, a lot of football, a lot of soccer and uh, cricket, and went to the nineteen eighty Olympics and uh, yeah, lots of you know stuff. So I'd work and go off and watch a bit of sport and then work a bit, and so on. that was good fun. Came back, uh, went into general practice because there really wasn't any there wasn't any sports medicine around in those days. This is the early eighties we're talking about, and I'm, I'm dating myself. I don't. Um, the early eighties and. Um, I started off in general practice uh, down in, in southeastern uh, Melbourne in a suburb called McKinnon. And um, because of my interest in sport, you know, I, I, I got involved in sort of sports medicine just as it was starting. They were, there was a little course that they ran for GPs, which I did. And then we set up a little sports medicine clinic as an adjunct to our general practice um, and got a couple of physios in and, uh, and started doing a bit of sport and sports medicine and general practice at the same time. And then, um, 1986, uh, we got an opportunity to uh, to open a new sports medicine centre at uh, Olympic Park in Melbourne, and um, it was right in the hub of where all the sort of sport was happening. And uh, they decided they wanted to have a sports medicine clinic. We put a tender together, and we won the tender. And uh, I decided I'd give it a go for six months, full time sports medicine, because there really wasn't anyone doing full time sports medicine in those days. And I thought I'd give that a crack, and I could always go back to general practice if I needed to. But uh, yeah, that was uh, yeah, what was that? You know, forty odd years ago, and I haven't got back to general practice since. So, so that started uh, Olympic Park Sports Medicine Centre. Soon became, I think, the biggest uh, clinic in in the country. And uh, you know, we had uh, you know up to fifty odd uh, you know sort of uh, people working there: doctors, physios, massage therapists, podiatrists, and so on. Um, that was great. And then um, I got involved with different sporting teams. Um, I'd had a long involvement with uh, with the Melbourne University Football Club, and um, sort of indirectly through that, I got asked to uh, to go away with the Australian team to the World Student Games, World University Games. Um, and the first one I went to was in Edmonton, Canada, and uh, then Kobe, Japan, and then uh, Zagreb, which in those days was Yugoslavia. Um, so I went to three of those. Uh, they were my sort of first international trips, and uh, and that was fantastic. That gave me a you know, I guess a foot in the door, and I through that I met a whole bunch of other coaches and and staff and so on. And then uh, one thing led to another. I worked with the Australian swim team for a while, and then um, and then got uh, got a gig with the athletics team for about ten years through the nineteen nineties. Travelled to all the world championships and uh, Commonwealth Games and uh, things like that. Um, and then, uh, actually, before that, I also got a job with uh, one of the AFL teams with uh, with Melbourne or VFL as it was in those days, um, Melbourne Football Club. I did that for uh, for a few years, um, and uh, was also starting to uh, you know, starting to present uh, at conferences and travel to to conferences and things. And then uh, then got asked to write a textbook, uh, which was a bit weird. And, and uh, you know, someone had read an article I wrote and said, "Oh, you know, would you write a textbook?" And they said, "Oh, no, I'm not really." experienced enough for that and then my colleagues reminded me that I'd basically bagged the crap out of every other sports medicine textbook that had been written because they were all terrible so uh, we finished up writing a textbook and um, 
that turned out to be a huge success. And uh, we're now on the sixth edition of that textbook, Brookman and Khan's Clinical Sports Medicine. And uh, it's the uh, it's the Bible of sports medicine around the world, which we never really even dreamt of in those in those days. So that's worked out pretty well. Um, and then, uh, yeah, then kept uh, you know running the uh, the clinic at, uh, in Melbourne and working with uh, with teams. Did two Olympics, um, did the Atlanta Olympics as the doctor for the athletics team and the assistant manager. And then they realised I wasn't much of a doctor, so they made me the manager for the athletics team in Sydney. That was a great experience, sort of all the planning for a couple of years leading up to that. And then the, the Sydney Olympics, I was in charge of the biggest team within a team. We had eighty two athletes and thirty odd staff and. Uh, that was an amazing experience uh, to be involved with that, um, and then uh, then I took a bit of a break from travelling because I was you know kids were sort of growing up and teenagers and then you know we needed an extra pair of hands around the place. So, um, uh, but then a few years later I went back to um, to working with teams, worked with the Socceroos. So for four years leading up to the World Cup in two thousand and ten in South Africa. So uh, did that. That was a great uh, great experience as well. We didn't do quite as well as we'd hoped, but we the three or four years leading up to it was amazing. We travelled all around Asia, all sorts of different countries, uh, playing uh, qualifying games and so on, um, and then got there in the end. And then straight after that, I went off to uh, to the back to the UK and uh, took up a job as the head of sports medicine and sports science at the Liverpool Football Club, a uh, very famous club, which was actually going through some pretty rough times. It was a bit of a shambles when I got there, to be honest. But um, spent three years there. Had a great, uh, great three years in, in Liverpool. Loved the, loved the city. Um, you know, any city that's two passions are uh, uh, football and the Beatles. Can't be a bad city, I reckon. And I had a great time there. Um, and then that finished up. And what happened then? Then, uh, then yeah, out of the blue, I got uh, got offered to travel with the Australian cricket team. Um, and cricket had been my sport as a as a kid, and you know, uh, but I just had I just hadn't been involved with cricket up till then for various reasons. Someone else was doing cricket, and I was you know doing other sports and so on. And I sort of thought, oh well, you know, I guess I'll never get to to do cricket, you know, my 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 real love. And um, just out of the blue, yeah, they they needed someone at short notice, and I went and did a tour, and uh, and they said, would you do some more tours, you know? And I said, well. To be honest, it's really hard to fit in because up till then they just had various doctors doing tours, and uh, they grab someone for a, you know a month or two here and there. And I said, look, that's really difficult if you've got a full time job. You know, why don't you have a full time doctor? And uh, and they said, oh, well, because they had full time everything else. They had a full time physio and a masseur and manager and everything like that. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, why haven't you got a full time doctor? And they said, oh, would you do it? And I said, well, yeah, I might. You know, so um, anyway, I finished up doing that full time for for five years and. Uh, had a, an amazing time, 51 tests in a row and uh, all the ups and downs of, uh, of touring, did two Ashes tours, uh, toured, you know, West Indies, India, Sri Lanka, you know, everywhere. It was, uh, it was a great experience with a great group of uh, group of people. Um, finished up there in, in 2017 and um, uh, haven't done a lot of sports since then. I did a year with the Melbourne Football Club in the AFL, back, you know, turn the clock, you know, 40 years later, I came back to the original team I was with and uh, we actually won a premiership a couple of years ago, which was pretty exciting. And uh, I decided that was a good note to, to go out on. And so these days, my only involvement in sport is with my amateur football team, the same universe, Melbourne University Blues football team I've been involved with for 50 years. And I, I still go down there every training night and every game and um, help out and do all sorts of jobs around the, around the club. I really love that uh, that level of sport and so on. But um, so that's my sort of sports medicine career i guess and then my you know nu- nutrition career has really been the last 10 years or so um 
because I, I really, you know, had no particular interest in, in nutrition up till 10 years ago. And then, uh, then yeah, was quite, uh, was metabolically unhealthy and uh, discovered low carb and uh, turned all my health around in a, in a very short period of time. And since then, I've become a, a big advocate of, uh, of the low carb lifestyle. I think I'll shut up now because I'm talking too much. Oh, not at all, Peter. I'm like, I'm, I thought you were cricket. And then you go through Olympics and Commonwealth Games and um, World University Games and Australian swim team and athletics team and AFL. And I can't believe what you've done. I had no idea. I just, I guess what I know about you is just cricket, but you were heavily involved in it. So I just want to say, number one, congratulations. That is um, the most amazing CV I've ever heard in sports. So, yeah, congratulations. And it's so exciting to just still see you from the 80s to now still in the sports arena. And obviously it is your love. And I always find when you find a love, you, you never get tired of it. You've just become more and more passionate about it. So let's now turn to, oh, but before I turn to the nutrition career, I have to tell you this. So as Kim is saying to you about the 80s, so I was in Melbourne in the 80s also, and Karen Ng worked in the same building as I did. I was at recreation in Armadale, right. and I met her on several occasions because she was the U Butte um, yep you know, sports dietitian at the time. So mm. I was very thrilled to meet her considering I was just a young nutritionist that had just finished my degree and um, was coming out. And so I watched her. But I have not seen, whether because I moved away from Melbourne, I haven't seen her much in the, the news. Is she still practising? Uh, not practising, I don't think. No, she does a little bit of media stuff. But certainly she's uh, she's taken a you know, sort of backward step on the media. She was very prominent in the media and uh, uh, publicly uh, until, you know, probably 10 years ago or so and just a little bit now. But, uh, no, she's got more involved in uh, in, in running, uh, doing up pubs and running pub restaurants and uh, and, and things like that. But, uh, yeah, she, she was a real sort of a pioneer in, in the mm. world of, of sports. She and Louise Burke were really the two pioneers of sports nutrition in Australia. And and I was very lucky because I'd, I'd known Karen since she was a young girl. She was my my sister's best friend at school. And uh, so, you know, I'd, I'd known her uh, probably since she was about 10 years old, I think. So, um, yeah, it was lovely to be able to work with her in those days. And we actually published a book, um, Food for Sport, in the in the 1980s, which was like the first sort of sports nutrition, Australian sports nutrition book and so on. So, uh, yeah, it was great working with uh, with Karen. She's a wonderful person. Yeah. Well, I do remember that book. Um I remember it well, but I had no idea you were the the co-author. Isn't that funny? I just saw her name. You know, my eyes were only for Karen. Sorry, not for you, Peter. No, <laughs> absolutely, more... absolutely. I was the poor relations that one. That's for sure. Yeah, but now they're more for you and the incredible changes that you have made with new, you know, within sports and nutrition. So let's talk about how you were awakened and then what you did for the Australian cricket team, wasn't it, at the time? You were with the Australian cricket team when this was all happening? Yeah. Um, it was actually just before I started with the Australian cricket team. So I was in Liverpool and um, I, um, you know, if, if you'd asked me then, you know, how was I, you know, was I healthy, you know, uh, I'd have said, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm fine. Um, the reality was I wasn't quite as healthy as I thought I was. Uh, for a start, I had a family history of type 2 diabetes. So uh, my father had developed type 2 diabetes at, at 60, exactly the age that I was then. So I was pretty you know, aware I didn't want to go down that uh, that track. I was uh, significantly overweight, sort of obese, 
Um, I'd put on probably, you know, half a kilogram a year for 30 years, like, you know, many middle-aged men, you know, and I uh, consider 60 middle-aged. I used to think it was old, but now I think it's middle-aged. Um, but mm. um, I, um, yeah, so I, I, you know, I was, my BMI was, you know, 30 and uh, I was, you know, I was, a, I was obese. Um, and I had some metabolic issues. I'd had a fatty liver uh, for 10 years, probably at least. Uh, every time a blood test, you know, I'd had a blood test every couple of years, it'd come back saying, you know, consistent with fatty liver. And I'd ignored it. I didn't really understand much about fatty liver. And I figured I was on a low fat diet, and, you know, I'd be fine. So a typical doctor, you know, ignored uh, what was going on. And I had um, high triglycerides. Um, I had uh, high insulin levels. And uh, in retrospect, I was clearly pre-diabetic, but I had no idea at the time. And um, so I, I was just, you know, blissfully uh, eating my low-fat diet and, and exercising and, and, you know, wondering why I was getting fatter and sicker. And uh, and um, then I um, – an old friend of mine by the name of Tim Noakes, who you're probably uh, yeah. aware yep. of, uh, South, Af- <laughs> South African – um, sports scientist. So Tim and I were old mates. We'd, we'd, you know, been in the same area of sports medicine, sports science for a long time. And you know, we often used to, uh, you know, be invited to speak at the same conferences. And, uh, you know, while they were talking about all their, you know, weird American sports, Tim and I, you know, find a corner and talk about cricket and rugby and the important sports. And um, <laughs> so I was, you know, Tim was a good friend. And, 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 and Tim, around about that time, you know, came out publicly and said that he thought we had nutrition completely the wrong way around and that it was, wasn't... Uh, Fat that was the problem was carbohydrate, and I and I remember hearing that, and I thought, oh, come on, Tim, you know, really, you know, <laughs> I mean, you've, you know, you've been right, you've been proven correct on a few previous occasions, but this time you've really lost the plot, mate. You know, uh, you couldn't possibly be right. The whole, you know, the whole of Western society has been on this low fat diet for forty years, and you're saying it's wrong. You know, come on, you know, get serious. But because it was Tim, I thought, no, well, I really should look into this. So. Um, I uh, I read a book uh, by Gary Taubes uh, called mm. Good Calories, Bad Calories. Uh, I'm sure uh, you've read it. And many of your listeners yeah. would have read it. And um, and this book just blew me away. I mean, I just couldn't believe what I was reading. Because not only did he talk about the sort of relative merits of fats and carbohydrates, but he talked about the politics of how the low-fat movement had won out over the low-carb movement for reasons that I'd always assume were, you know, Science and evidence, and you know, so and turns out like most things to be money and politics and uh, power and so on. So, uh, and this book just blew me away. I mean, I remember sitting on the edge of my bed in my apartment at Liverpool, looking out over the over the Mersey River, and um, thinking, "Nah, this could not be right." Like, you know, this couldn't be right. We we couldn't all have been on the wrong diet for forty years, and uh, I found it really disturbing. And, so being you know, slightly OCD as I am, I dived into everything I could get my hands on and, and read every article and that book. And so I spent you know, a couple of months just diving into this. Uh, and the more I read, the more I convinced I thought, oh, you know, funny, Tim's right again, you know, the bastard. I mean, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's proven everyone wrong. And um, so I thought, no, well, the next thing to do is, is try a little experiment on myself. And uh now we know as scientists that you know experiments with an n equals one are a waste of time. But when it, when you're the one, then they're not a waste of time. So I decided it was time for an n equals one experiment. Day one, got my blood test done, jumped on the scales, and then uh, did three months of a pretty strict low carb diet. So I stopped eating all sugars, processed foods, you know, starchy foods, rice, pasta, you know, bread, cereal, potato, all those sorts of things. Went back to eating probably the way that my grandparents would have eaten. You know, just just real food, just meat, fish, eggs, you know, all that cholesterol, dairy, all that fat, you know. 
Uh, you know, non-starchy veg. The only fruit I had was berries. Uh, I had some nuts and seeds, occasional glass of red wine and a little slither of dark chocolate every night. That were my sort of treats. And um, I did, did that for three months. And the, the results were just dramatic. I mean, I I stopped uh, – initially I stopped being hungry. Then you started to feel more energetic. Then the weight starts falling off. And anyway, to cut a long story short, after three months, I'd lost 13 kilograms in 13 weeks. I had uh, reversed every one of my metabolic abnormalities. So my fatty liver that I'd had for 10 years reverted to normal. My triglycerides came down to normal. My insulin came down to normal. Um I felt you know my exercise capacity increased, my sleep improved. I mean, so many uh, things uh, you know felt felt better. Um, there was one drawback though; I had to get a new wardrobe because I couldn't fit into any of my clothes. But uh, yeah, that I think it was a small price to pay for uh, for that. So that was really a life changing experience for me. And uh, I guess when that sort of thing happens, it, you know, you've got one of two choices: you can either sort of say, "Oh, you know, I'm all right, mate," and you know, just get on with things, or or you can say, no, I need to, you know, I need to tell people about this. And um, and to be to be fair, I didn't really have a choice because people would come up to you and say, my God, you know, what have you done? Have you got cancer or something? You know, you lost so much weight. And uh, and I said, no, no, I've just uh, done this diet. And uh, and you know, people would be questioning me and so on. So um, so I, you know, since then I've become a you know a passionate advocate of, uh, of this way of uh, of life and, and been bashing my head against a brick wall for the last ten years trying to convince uh, my profession and, and others that uh, that this is the way to go. And um, along the way, you know, started up a, started up a charity called Sugar by Half, and published a couple of books. Uh, one called A Fat Lot of Good, and more recently, The Diabetes Plan. And then a couple of years ago, we we decided to tackle the issue of type two diabetes in in this country, which uh, you know is I think the biggest single health problem in Australia. And uh, we started a program called Defeat Diabetes, which. Uh, this was an app-based program, now an app and a web-based program, basically taking people through what uh, what they need to do to combat uh, to type two diabetes, to reverse their diabetes with the, with a low carb uh, dietary approach. And uh, so that's really become my sort of main passion, I guess, over the last ten years. I spend a lot of time. I give a lot of talks. I do a lot of writing. Uh, a lot of talking to people about uh, and. You know, currently, sort of, there's a parliamentary inquiry into diabetes, so I'm busy sort of uh, preparing submissions and talking to people on the inquiry and things like that. So, yeah, it's become a become all-consuming. But uh, so that's my sort of, you know, I guess my nutrition journey. As far as the cricket team goes, well, um, I guess you know it was a bit tricky because I, you know, got involved with cricket and, and they already had a dietitian and uh, she didn't really believe in uh, in, in the low carb. Uh, um, lifestyle and uh so i had to be very careful about how i uh in fact I, you know I, I resolved that i wasn't going to push the low carb stuff at all because you know this wasn't my my role you know i didn't want to step on her toes and uh, create issues and so on i thought no i'll just uh, i'll just shut up but um you know the problem was that uh you know some of the boys had seen me before and after uh my my weight loss and uh and they would come up and say, you know, gosh, you know, what, what you know, what have you done? You know, that's, that's amazing. You know, you look amazing, and blah blah blah, and so on. And there, there were a few of them in particular who got got very interested. Um, the first one was probably Shane Watson, who um, had battled with his uh, weight the whole of his career. Um, and um, Shane uh, Shane has a massive appetite. <laughs> he eats more food than anyone I've ever come across. You go to a restaurant and he orders two main courses, two two entrees, two main courses, two desserts, and polish them all off. He's a very hungry boy. Um, but as I said, he battled with his his weight the whole career, and 
he found that the only way he could, you know, keep his weight under control was to, to virtually starve himself. And he'd be miserable doing that. And so he was in this really bad cycle of, uh, of, of starving himself, you know, uh, losing some weight, being miserable, then eating again and so on. And, and it impacted on his career, I think, you know, he'd, uh, as a result, he'd, he'd struggle with, with weight and, and a lot of injuries and so on. And so he was very interested in this whole uh, concept and, and he embraced it uh, fully and uh, really got into the, into the low carb and, and, I remember him saying to me, oh, this is just so fantastic. You know, I can eat as much as I like and I, and I still lose weight, you know. So uh, he, he wasn't as hungry, but he still uh, was able to, to eat a lot more than he had been eating and, uh, and, not, uh, and not put on weight. So he was probably the first to really uh, embrace it. Um, then uh, Davey Warner at the time was uh, quite, you might remember him as quite a pudgy sort of uh, guy when he first came on the, on the scene. Uh, you wouldn't have called him an athlete. Uh, he was overweight and uh, had a you know didn't have a great lifestyle and and had a lot of junk food and and things and and um, so he got a lot more interested in uh, in diet and and then he met uh, Candice, his now wife who was a uh, uh, an Ironman triathlete and and so uh, between uh, her and, and and myself you know we uh, we got Dave interested in in, in diet and uh, and exercise and uh, he transformed completely from being a uh, you know, a relatively poor fitness level to to being super fit, uh, great fieldsman, great runner between the wickets, and uh, he's obviously had a fantastic uh, career. So they were a couple of the major sort of people who who got into it. The the other one is uh, is my favourite story is uh, is Usman Khawaja, and um, Usman um, had had uh, it's a really interesting story. He'd he'd had a lot of knee trouble. Um, and really bad, you know, knee trouble, and to the point where he had to stop playing. And uh, and he'd seen everyone. He'd been to see all sorts of specialists and so on, and had uh, scans and had arthroscopies and and so on. And no one could work out what was wrong with his knee. And uh, he eventually had to stop playing. And eventually, he saw a rheumatologist who diagnosed him with a condition called seronegative arthritis, which is similar to rheumatoid arthritis, but not actually rheumatoid. But um, and put him on some pretty heavy drugs, and that sort of helped a little bit. And then put him on a on a newish um, autoimmune type type drug, very expensive uh, drug that uh, he had to inject every uh, every fortnight. And so, so when I met him uh, on tour in uh, in India in two thousand and thirteen, he was injecting himself with this drug once a fortnight, and it was keeping his knee sort of uh, pain under control. He said, you know, after about ten days after the injection, his knee would start to ache, and then he'd get, you know it was time for his next injection. So. Um, he was he was back in the Australian squad. He wasn't in the team. Uh, he wasn't training fully. You know, the coaches thought he was lazy, and uh, you know he was struggling a bit with that. Um, anyway, he came up to me during that tour and said, uh, "Doc, you know what weight you've lost? You know, look, um, you know, I'd like to try what uh, I mean. You know, I feel as though I'm coming out two or three kilograms overweight, which he was, and um, you know, I'd like to uh, to lose some of that weight. You know, can I can I sort of follow what uh, what you did?" And I said, "Sure." You know, so. Um, he went on to a low carb uh, diet, and uh, which is not, you know, India is not the easiest place to go low carb. You know, no rice, no no naan, all that sort of stuff. But Usman's very, uh, very disciplined. So he went on to, to a low carb uh, diet, and um, so three weeks later, he came up to me and said, uh, "Doc, uh, I forgot to have my injection last week." I said, "What do you mean?" It was, you see, and he said, uh, "Well, I didn't get any knee pain, and and uh, I've sort of forgotten to take it. It's now three weeks. Should, should I take it now?" And of course, I pretended that yeah, that's exactly what I expected, having 
no idea. Um, and uh, I said, oh, no, why don't you just wait and see? Anyway, to cut a long story short, he was able to stop that medication, which uh, was costing the taxpayer about $10,000 a year, I think. Um, and um, and his knee, he had no more knee pain and he was able to increase his uh, his training. And uh, 12 months later, he was in, you know, he was back in the team and in the top 10 batsmen of the world. And now 10 years later, he's still uh, in the top 10 batsmen of the world and um, still on a low-carb uh, diet and, and still got his knee pain uh, well and truly under control. And I guess that was a real eye-opener for me. Uh, so I really had those two light bulb moments, one near my own, you know, health transformation. And then secondly, Usman's, because um, I began to understand the role that diet plays in inflammation. Mm. And inflammation is now thought to be, you know, at the, at the core of a lot of chronic disease, is sort of chronic low-grade inflammation. It's thought to be, you know, a significant cause of, of heart disease, of, of Alzheimer's, of depression, of you know, all sorts of things. And here was someone who'd basically resolved their long-standing inflammation by changing their diet. And I thought, nah, wow, you know, that was, that just blew me away. And, um, and so I started to, you know, to understand that, that, uh, you know, diet was so important in, uh, in inflammation and therefore could have an impact on so many different uh, conditions. So, yeah, in a way, you know, that, I mean, that taught me a lesson, you know, as I said, I, no, I pretended I, you know, that's what I expected to happen with Wilson, but of course I had no idea. And, uh, was as much of a shock to me as it was to to us, and um, yeah, we've you know chatted about it often since then, and uh, you know he's he's loving uh, that lifestyle, and uh, it's made a big difference to him, and it's made a big difference to me, and that it's opened my eyes to the importance of uh, of inflammation and, and the fact the effect that diet can have on inflammation, and uh, I've looked into that a lot now, and and read a lot on on that, and and it seems that it's sort of you know processed foods and particularly sugars and and uh, seed oils that are really the things that uh, that cause inflammation. And if you can avoid those processed foods, which all contain those you know, sugar and seed oils and and, and grains, so, um, you know, you can really have an impact on on those sort of uh, inflammatory conditions. So you know, I'm now involved in some research into that, and uh, yeah, I've had a number of other people with similar issues, you know, arthritis and so on, significantly improve their uh, their symptoms by changing their diet. I hope every athlete hears this. Peter, because a lot of athletes believe that they can eat whatever they want because they run. Uh, yeah. And what you have said, you know, about he obviously either had an injury or just that inflammation was there or based on an injury. And it was, mm. it was basically, you know, fixed by eating the right foods. So I hope every athlete hears this because I don't think athletes know this and I don't think that most of the people know this. Do, do, the amount of friends I have, so I'm in my 60s, and the amount of friends no, that I have I now going surely, not. surely yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, but the amount of my friends that are going in for hip replacements or knee yep. replacements, I'm I'm absolutely blown away by it and I keep wanting to say have you looked at the food that you're consuming? Did you realise food has a lot to do with, you know, these issues and what's happening? I'm, I'm not saying so much a, um, like a really bad injury. I'm talking about all of a sudden your hip hurts and then you start limping and mm. then um, the inflammation continues and then and obviously the, the joint degrades and and so on and yeah. so on. So um, we'll be pushing this to the sports people so that they can listen to this. I want to ask you, you know, you're obviously doing a lot on a 
political policy level, which I think is tough work. I'd rather work on a ground, you know, like a bit of a groundswell of an effect rather than a, or a grassroots level than the policy level. But my question is, why is the government, number one, uh, and perhaps even medicine, not getting this, not realising that if we improved our diets, we'd improve our chronic disease rate, it would be far less, our metabolic syndrome problems would be less, diabetes would be less, it would be less of a problem on the medical system or the Medicare system or the public system, uh, less on our hospitals. And, And we knew through COVID if you had a metabolic disease or you had chronic conditions, then the likelihood of dying of, you know, COVID was far greater than if you were a healthy specimen. So being on that policy level, I want to ask you, what don't they get? <laughs> very good questions. Very good. I, you know, I, I, have the same, I have the same questions. You know, I mean, uh, it's funny, isn't it? You know, once you, once you discover something like this and it just seems so bloody obvious, you know, what's got to be done, you know, and you sort of struggle with the fact, well, why can't everyone see that? You know, if it's so obvious to us, mm. why isn't it so obvious to everyone else? And, uh, and I think I don't think there's one, any one particular reason, but I think there's a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and uh, the first, if we, if we tackle the medical profession or you know the health industry, uh, health professions uh, in general, um, we're very, uh, well, doctors in particular are very conservative, very traditional. They believe everything they were taught in medical school. They're very reluctant to change anything. And they're very focused on what they know. And what doctors know is drugs and surgery. And uh, what they don't know is nutrition, exercise, sleep, stress. And so they stay in their comfort zone. So the doctor is not going to uh, give you dietary advice because they don't know anything about nutrition. I didn't have a single lecture on nutrition in my six years of medicine, not one. I don't think things have changed much uh, since then. So the first premise is that doctors know nothing about nutrition, which most patients assume that doctors know th- know about nutrition. They know nothing. They just say, "Oh, go go and follow the dietary guidelines," which you know that's another issue. Uh, they, they're wrong, but um, so that's that's an issue. So they stay in their comfort zone, and basically their comfort zone is drugs, is medications. So you go and see a doctor. You've got ten minutes with your GP. You know. By the time he sort of assessed you and so on, he's probably there's about a minute or two left to uh, to you know make some recommendation. So the easiest thing for him to do is to write a prescription for a drug. You know he hasn't got time to to you know spend twenty minutes talking to you about diet and and, and lifestyle and stress and exercise and you know set you an exercise program and go through your diet and all that sort of stuff. He's just got time to write you a script, and 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 people expect a script from their doctor. That's why they go to the doctor. You know, you know they sort of complain if they don't get one, and. Um, so I think, you know, the, the medical profession uh, needs to, you know, really have a, a serious look at that themselves. And, and, that, and part of the problem is that, you know, the, the pharmaceutical industry, big pharma, is, is incredibly influential in medical education. In, in that. Most doctors get, you know, most of their information on, on medicine from, from, their, uh, from their drug reps. You know, it brings around the latest, uh, you know, supposed research and, and drugs and, and so on. And or they go to a drug sponsored, you know, dinner or uh, or conference or something like that, where uh, you know it's all just about medications, and there's no one there talking about uh, diet and exercise and so on. So, 
they stay in their comfort zone. So that's that's a significant uh, significant problem. The other issue, obviously, is is in the broader population, and uh, and that's where you know as influential as the pharmaceutical industry is in, in medicine, the food industry is so influential in uh, in in the broader population, and um, and they're incredibly clever, you know, and they're incredibly rich, and uh, and they can spend a lot of money, uh, firstly developing um, foods that are cheap that are tasty, that uh, look good, um, they feel good, um, and uh, and then they market the hell out of them uh, very cleverly. You know? So, uh, you know, let's take uh, breakfast cereals, you know, I mean, or, uh, you know, uh, cereal-flavoured sugars, as I call them, you know. I mean, you know, they'll they'll promote, you know, they, they, they um they have, they're all wonderful, you know, coloured uh, boxes that says, you know, low this, low that, you know, low fat, low whatever, you know, high fibre. Um, yeah, but basically it's just full of sugar. Mm. And, uh, and and kids love it, you know, because kids get addicted. To, you know, they find sugar attractive and so on. And um, and so, you know, the kids are walking along the, the, the supermarket aisles with mum and say, mummy, 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 you know, I want that, I want that, you know. And um and uh, and so you you start the day with uh, you know with cereal with a whole bu- basically a, a cup of sugar, um, and uh, and it just go, you know, goes from there. So you know the the food industry uh, is very is very clever the way they've uh, they present food and uh, and market food and, and develop food and and, and they've all um, they've got us all addicted to sweetness. You know we expect things to be sweet now because of so much sugar around, and. Um, um, and you know they can produce these processed foods, you know, or to call, actually you shouldn't really call them foods. They're, they're things that are made to look like food, um, so cheaply, you know, and, and tasty. So, you know, of, of course, you know, people will, uh, and 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 they're easy to easy to make. I mean, you know, you you know, you you're both parents are working, you're busy, you pick up the kids from childcare, you take get home at six o'clock, you know, you've got to feed them, do their homework, uh, you know, bathe them, you know, all that sort of stuff in the next hour and. What's the easiest thing to do? You know, spend an hour cooking a proper meal, or uh, or heat up the frozen pizza. You know, and um, which the kids, you know, love anyway. So it's it's a really difficult situation, and um, and it needs a very courageous government, I think, to uh, to tackle those issues. Um, you know, even simple things like sugar tax, we couldn't even get that uh, you know over the line here, and many other countries have. And, uh, you know, restrictions on advertising, junk food advertising it uh, on TV at you know kids' times, and you know, you can't get that across the line. So it's it's really difficult. I mean, the food industry is very powerful; they have a lot of influence over government, and um, it's very hard to uh, to beat that. You know, we don't uh, you know we don't have lobbyists, we don't have you know money to donate to to political parties. You know, we just have science. Well, doesn't seem to work anymore, does it? So uh, mm-hmm. it's really frustrating, and I, I quite accept. You know, you say, and you say, look, you know, it's probably a waste of time. All this political stuff. You know, it's, I've, and I've always said the same. I always said this has got to be a grassroots movement. It's got to come from below. Patients have got to educate their doctors. Patients have got to educate their MPs, and so on. But there is a little bit of interest at the moment, um, and hence this uh, parliamentary inquiry into diabetes that is currently. Uh, underway and i would encourage everyone to make a submission uh there's no restriction on who can make a submission get online write make a submission it's very easy to do and just tell them your story if you've got a good story tell them your story the more people are telling their stories the more they're going to listen and if you've got a good low carb story you've you know improve your health metabolically and lost weight and so on 
um, particularly if you've reversed your diabetes, as we know we can do now with diet, tell them. Tell this parliamentary inquiry that, uh, that that's what you've done. And, uh, yeah, the more people who do that, the, the better. And uh, that'll be very valuable. So, look, it's too good an opportunity to miss. I, you know, yeah, I, I agree. I don't particularly like doing all this sort of politicking mm-hmm. and uh, and so on. But um, I've made appointments to, to meet most of the people on the committee. I'm going up to Sydney next week to meet a couple of them. I've already had a meeting with uh, with with one of the committee members in uh, in Melbourne. So they're... There are four doctors in the House of uh, Reps, and uh, and three of them are on the eight-person committee. Another one's an observer to the to the committee, and so on. So, I'm meeting with all of them over the next uh, couple of weeks. And um, you know, I had a very positive response from uh, from Michelle and Andrew Raja, who's the uh, the new member for uh, for Higgins in uh, in Victoria. It happens to be my local uh, member, and uh, I had a great meeting with her, and she was very positive, and so on. So, you know, you've got to try. And uh, I'm certain, you know, this seems like such a good opportunity to to get um, diet on the agenda of, of diabetes because, you know, it's, it's not even on the agenda. I mean, the uh, Diabetes Australia has put out a strategic plan, which is 30 pages, and mentioned the word diet once and uh, didn't actually talk about, you know, the role of diet in, in the management of, of diabetes. I mean, it's just uh, it's just mind-boggling, you know, that uh, that they don't even understand that. And, um, you know, we're, we're trying to educate them a little bit and, and and I've actually been invited to speak at the Australian Diabetes Congress in a couple of weeks' time where all the, the diabetes heavies are going to be there and I'm not sure anyone will turn up to listen, but I'll certainly give it a go and, um, you know, just see if we can uh, and just, you know, try and get diet on the agenda for diabetes because it's so clear now as far as diabetes is concerned is that diet is the key to success. I mean, uh you know, we were always told when I was in medical school that type 2 diabetes is a chronic progressive disease, that you're on medication for life, there's no hope, you know. But it's been shown both here and overseas that there is hope. You know, you can actually put diabetes into remission, you know, by, by a low-carb diet, which makes a, a lot of sense. I mean, what is type 2 diabetes? It's a disease of carbohydrate intolerance. So, you know, as my kids would say, duh, you know, <laughs> you don't eat carbohydrates. I mean, it's not that, you know, it's not that difficult. And yet, you know, the recommended diet for diabetes has been a high-carbohydrate, low-fat diet because of this obsession with fat and heart disease and so on, which has all been disproven anyway. So, you know, it's it's incredibly frustrating. Um, and sometimes, you know, I agree. I feel as though I'm bashing my head against a brick wall. And uh, other times then you get an email from someone saying, you know, oh, I've read your book and it's changed my life. And you think, oh, okay, well, I'll keep going for another week. <laughs> there we go. So, yeah, it is, uh, it is challenging. But... Uh, Anyway, I'm a stubborn bastard and I'll keep trying. Well, congratulations on all that you have achieved and thank goodness we have you in our corner. Um, And there's more and more doctors that are coming into that corner. Like, you know, we have Dr. James Mewkey, we have Gary Fedke. Um, I just went to a talk and I was talking about this to you um, before we even started recording. And I just went to a talk in Aubrey-Odonga and there were three medical doctors in the room. You know, one was Mm -hmm. talking on um, blue light and sunshine and and things like that and getting outside and grounding. He was talking about that. The other one was talking on visceral fat and what do you call them? A toffee, a toffee, Uh, thin on the outside, but fat in the inside. So he was talking about that. And the other one was talking about the influence of what you've just said, the food industry and the pharmaceutical industry in influencing diet and um, the medical uh, profession. So um, I, I will make sure that that submission link is on our notes 
so that people can go to it and please put a submission in because people who are listening to us, Peter, and we've been doing up for a chat. We did have a hiatus of a couple of years, but we've been doing it for at least 10 years now. So and we will make sure that that submission goes up. Yeah, and, and you know, people sort of say, oh, you know, they're not interested in hearing from me. Yes, they are interested in hearing from everyone. And, and I think the more, you know, non-medical, just the more patients, you know, have, have experienced this that they hear from, uh, that's really, it can be really powerful. So, uh, you know, I can get up there and give all the science and all that sort of stuff. But, if you know, it's the personal stories that are so powerful. And uh, if you've got a personal story, then then tell them because, uh, you know, as I said, very, very powerful, very influential. It, look, it's interesting. I um, was watching um, something this morning and it was talking about um, education in children with autism and there was 115 submissions for um, these kids needing to be in education. Now, this is in the US. This wasn't Australia. And mm. They had a committee and then they had everyone had two minutes to tell their story. And the committee were rude. They were on their phones. They were talking. Uh, and they, I didn't see that they cared about these parents. And I just want, that's what frustrates me is I wonder, you know, we're going to do we're going to do these submissions and I don't think that there's any harm in doing it, at least give it a try. But sometimes I wonder, are they listening but not listening? And will they take these submissions into heart, considering that the um, the lobbyists, um, are, you know, which are for big pharma and big food and big agriculture, those types of things, have got a far more weight and money than we'll ever have. So it's in a way it frustrates me. So that was the one thing one thing I wanted to, to let you know about. And the second thing is that there's an American uh, presidential candidate who says the one thing he's going to do when he gets into office is to tackle the chronic um, health issues that they're now seeing in the US. I think that's the first time I've ever seen that as a platform for anyone in yep. In yep. it. I, I was just blown away by what he said and I went, yeah. where's our Australian this, uh... one? Unfortunately, he's not going to get elected, but uh, it would be great if he if he did. But um, yeah, it's look. I mean, I think uh, going back to to the point about the uh, the inquiry and so on. Yes. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I, I think um, I've always sort of said that the day that politicians realise there's votes in improving people's diet and nutrition will be the day when we win. And, uh, you know, because let's face it, I mean, the majority of politicians are just interested in getting elected and they'll do whatever is necessary to uh, to make their electorate happy. And if there's enough of us out there saying to them, we want something done about nutrition in this country to tackle the problems of chronic disease, um, then they might listen. So numbers are important, you know, getting as much noise and as much uh, as we can there. I, I think that, you know, that can help. So. Uh, as I said, you know, I encourage everyone to do that. All right. And do we, would you say call our um, local MP and and ask them to think about this as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, okay. you know, yeah. I mean, if you can get an, an audience with you, mo- most MPs will see someone in their electorate if they're, if they're asked. Uh, you might have to persevere a couple of times, but um, yeah. And if you can uh, bring this subject up and say, look, there's this diabetes inquiry. Um, you know, they may not be on the committee, but they will know people on the on the committee. There are people, there are um, members of parliament from all the parties on this. Uh, so it's not just a you know a government one. Um, 
it's a broad-based uh, one. And as I said, there are four doctors on it, and you know they all uh, um, care. I think about uh, about you know health and so on. So I see it as as you know as a good chance. I mean, you know, it's not it's not going to change the world, you know, but. I just think if we can get these things on on the agenda and uh, and and make people aware, then uh, then we might uh, we might get somewhere. So yeah, enough said. Wonderful. Perhaps perhaps Peter, your favourite word at the beginning of today was useful, and yeah. perhaps we could all have a useful approach to this, where we all get involved and get behind it. After all, it's all about numbers. I'm fascinated by everything. I have told Cindy this before. I loved you back then when I was a mere 19 year old. <laughs> And you were part of the crew that also our coaches listened to. I happened to run for Australia in the World Ultramarathon Indoor 24-hour championships in London with Cliff Young and Brian Smith and those kind of guys, John Bright. So I just want you to know how much you had a big impact on me back then. So did Karen. And yes, we did carb load. And yes, it was all the right science at the time, we thought. But one thing I want to say, if you as a doctor with as much medical knowledge and perhaps even a questioning or curious mind, uh, which is what hopefully university and tertiary education gives us, you didn't even want to pick up on the signs or signals that diet was related let alone diabetes. So how does the mere mortal <laughs> really mm. get on board when you say so many people are, are advocating the old way of being? Because being married to a cricketer, my husband is a sports commentator. Maybe you could talk to him and sit next yeah. to him in the next IPL. <laughs> but Danny, back when he played in the day, mm. you know, debut against Australia in the Benson and Hedges series, the Rothman yeah. series, sponsored yeah. by DB Breweries and all sorts of things. You know, it's yeah. a very big challenge. The one thing that changed Danny way after his career was reading a book by Novak Djokovic, Serve to Win, which was all, yes. all about yeah. dropping carbs. I, Remember? I read that. I read that book. Yeah. 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 And yeah. I've, that, actually, I've actually got a good uh, Novak Djokovic story. I'll tell you in a minute. Yeah. Go on. Oh, good. Play. Well, that, I could have told him everything that I was learning from Cindy, from what I was learning Mm. from amazing advocates in all of your space. But the one thing that turned him was reading Novak's book, which was, you know, a real athlete. So from your perspective, perhaps at a grassroots level, perhaps from a sporting perspective where so many of us watch it, live on it, bet on it, are curious about it, go to it, maybe sporting, you know, uh, you know, the, the sporting realm is where we could really make an impact. But I'm just curious to you how you're making an impact into the sporting profession when, with respect, dietitians and other doctors still don't have this philosophy. Yeah, look, I think things are changing slowly in, in the sporting world and the same as they are in the, in the rest of the world in that, uh, you know, I think we're not quite as obsessed with carbs as we as we used to be. You know, the old sort of, uh, you know, pasta party the night before the marathon and carbs, carbs, carbs and so on. There's a growing awareness that uh, that fat is also a very uh, good fuel for, for exercise, particularly for endurance athletes. And, uh, you know, we're now seeing, in, you know, people running, doing Ironman triathlons, you know, on uh, – on, on on no food, you know, just uh, um, fat adapted and uh, and using their fat stores to uh, to fuel them and so on. So that's a pretty radical change. Um, and uh, certainly, there's there's this sort of philosophy now of uh, of train low, compete high, and that uh, that more and more um, sort of footballers and cricketers and, and others are are basically going low carb, you know, sort of most of the time, and then uh, on game day or the night before they'll. Uh, They'll load up on some carbs, not massive amounts, but load up on some carbs, and uh, and they're hoping to get the sort of the best of both worlds, if you like. Because there's lots of advantages to not having lots of carbs, uh, 
because of that inflammation we talked about before and better recovery and uh, not having to eat the whole time and drink the whole time and so on. So there's distinct advantages to uh, to using fat as a fuel. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of interest in this whole uh, this whole area. And um, yeah, I think more and more people are uh, moving away from the obsession with carbs. Uh, the dietitians are a little bit slow to uh, to adapt, I have to say, but um, you know we'll get there eventually. Um, you know, people are very reluctant. I mean, if you've been pushing something for thirty years, you know, it's very hard to suddenly sort of you know do a do a one eighty degree turn and say actually, well, everything I've been saying for thirty years is wrong. Um, you know, you got to do this now. I mean, that's that's not an easy thing to do. Um, and uh, you know, I certainly found it quite quite challenging. I must admit, but um, but Peter, you know, can I just interrupt done, you there? I think yeah. the key to that though is is what you said before is the stories. They mm. may not want to hear that change, but the minute someone saw you had lost thirteen kilos, the curiosity of what did you do? How did you do it? So people yeah. telling their story is perhaps one of the best ways. Fill their hearts before their heads is what I was always taught. If you can connect into someone's reason why, or give them an absolute uh, true story of, of recovery or transformation, that surely would have some impact. And don't forget to tell us Novak's story. Yeah, I, mean, I absolutely agree. I think stories are so powerful. And as I said, you know, you can, I can write all the science and, you know, give them references and all that sort of stuff, but it's not as powerful as someone's individual story. And, uh, you know, that's why I think, you know, that there's an opportunity here for people to tell their stories and, uh, and really have an impact. Um, and people love stories, you know. I mean, uh, people love to hear stories, you know. So I'll tell you my Novak story. And um, so um, I was, um, uh, I got a phone call one night. I think it was 2008. And it was literally the, the night before the, uh, the Australian Open started. And at that stage, Novak Djokovic had never won a Grand Slam. He had a reputation as being a bit soft. He would pull out of a lot of games. And, uh, you know, he wasn't really considered a serious contender. Anyway, his uh, his management rang me and said, "Look, we've been given your name. You know, we'd love you to be uh, be part of uh, of uh, you know Team Novak, and uh, you know we're here in Melbourne, and uh, you know we'd like you to come. You know, like to see use you as our doctor for the next two weeks, and you know come be part of the team and sit in the sit in the box, and you know be spend the next two weeks with us, and so on. And um, and I'd literally just arrived down the coast for our first family holiday in about five years, and." Uh, and I thought, oh my God, you know, I can't, uh, you know, I can't not not go on with this holiday, you know. So I'll be divorced. So I had to toss it up, you know, divorce versus Novak. You know, it was a tough one. You know, I had to think about it. But um, no, I, um, I I said to uh, his manager, look, you know, I'd love to, but um, I really can't. And he, he was quite put on. You know, he was quite put on. He said, well, "What do you mean you can't? You know, this is Novak Djokovic." I said, "Look, I, I know. Look, you know, I understand, but." You've got to understand my situation. You know, I've got four kids. You know, we haven't had a family holiday for a couple of years. You know, uh, we've just arrived down here for two weeks holiday. You know, I, I can't do it. And he said, but, 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 you know, he really just couldn't believe I was saying no. Anyway, um, so that year, uh, what happens? You can guess what happens. He bloody wins. And uh, so, you know, I could have rocked on to, you know, been with Novak Djokovic for two weeks, taken all the credit for him winning his first Grand Slam, and probably, uh, you know, had a nice cruisy life for the last 20 years. But, nah, been a holiday with my family instead. Anyway, oh, can't win a ball. Oh, thank God you're still <laughs> married. I hope that yes. is. <laughs> that's a story. <laughs> that is uh, a story. Yeah, that's right. I haven't made too many bad decisions, but, yeah, that was probably a bad one. Anyway, not to worry. <laughs> I don't know. It might have cost you a lot more if you'd been divorced. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, that's true. That's true. Oh, uh, Peter. Do you, anyway. um, so do you still, what's your favourite sport now? Let's just, I know we're going to come to a close, but what do you love watching these days? Oh, look, I love watching all sport. I love watching cricket. I love watching footy, AFL, soccer. Uh, athletics has always been a real sort of passion of mine. They're probably the, the, the four sports that I really love uh, love watching. Um yeah, yeah, uh, but I, 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 I love watching all sport. You know, rugby union, I enjoy that. You know, uh, even league, uh, um, hockey. You know, my my kids played hockey. I got quite involved in in hockey. I did a bit of time with the Australian hockey team. I didn't mention that before, but uh, um, and did ran you know ran our local hockey club for uh, for a few years and so on. So yeah, I love hockey. Um, Can't believe the All Blacks haven't run you, Peter. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, I love uh, I love sport. You know, and. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's a great great hobby, um, and I've been very lucky. I've been able to combine my my hobby and my passion with my career, and and, and so lucky to be able to do that. Not, not many people could do that, you know. And uh, I've just been really lucky to be in the right time at the right place, you know. If I was twenty years older, you know, sports medicine wouldn't have existed in this country, you know. Twenty years younger, there's lots of people you know wanting to do it and so on. So there'd have been a lot more competition. So I was very lucky in the in the timing and uh, and so on. But, um, yeah, just really fortunate, you know. I sort of you know, there hasn't been a day when I haven't got out of bed in the morning and not look forward to uh, to go to work, you know. And uh, if you can say that, you know, at the end of your career, then uh, then you're pretty lucky, really. So I've had a, I've been blessed, you know. Worked with, uh, you know, I had four, you know, great passions in sport. You know, as I said, those four sports, you know, uh, AFL, soccer, cricket, and, and athletics. And I worked at the at the top level in in every one of them. Um, you know, World Cups and uh, Olympics and. Uh, all that so you know grand finals um so yeah i've been really really fortunate but uh i wish i'd you know been able to uh walk through the long room at lords uh with my spikes on and going to open the batting for australia but you know second best thing was uh you know being there as the club doctor plan b mm. it sounds like you have unbelievable gratitude for everything that you've achieved in your life and I have unbelievable gratitude for the times that you've said yes to me. And I'd like our audience to know that you have said yes to me for our Melbourne conference that we're having March 9th, 2024. So... I just want yep. to say I'm really excited about hearing you speak because every time I hear you, you have something new to say. So no doubt March 9th I'm going to learn so much more. So I'm looking forward to that. All right. I'll come up with some, some new stories for you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Peter, we just want to say thank you on behalf of the uh, two of pleasure. us and every single person listening to this. I'm still blown away that I have your book. I have Karen's Food for Sport book. It was my go-to back then that you were yeah. part of my sporting career in a very small but very significant way. And I just want to say thank you for that. I did set a world record as the youngest female to run 100 miles. So I feel like you may have had a little part to play in that, even though <laughs> I'm not really in, in anybody really considering all these other amazing sports people. But Thank you. And thank you also for talking not only about your passion and your philosophy, like even this family first is a massive philosophy, which shows us the depth of who you are, all jokes aside, and also your desire to support sport at a grassroots level. That really is the foundation of all sport, of all amazing athletes that we get to see and witness at a top level. And I think Cindy and I would just really love to say thank you for being you. Mm -hmm. Oh well, thank you guys too. You know, you're doing a great job in, in promoting this uh, 
this whole lifestyle and this whole movement. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a really important role you play. So uh, keep up the good work and, uh, yeah, happy to come on anytime. So uh, look forward to that, uh, that conference next March and, uh, yeah, very happy to chat anytime. Thank you if for having me. If you ever hear that you're away on a holiday, though, with your family, okay. we will think that we're priority, though. Okay, absolutely. <laughs> or, or we may just turn up. <laughs> yeah, why not? Why not? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Maybe the Paris that. Olympics or something like that. Yeah, that'd be oh, a good please, 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 please. Yeah. Hey, I'm oh, sure my, Danny um, would still bolt you at this point if you want to have a little crack. Oh, I'm sure yeah, he absolutely, could crank absolutely. that arm over and let you open some sort of no, batting. No, I'd, like, I'd like a decent. I'll need a decent bowler to bolt in there. You know, no, <laughs> not a kiwi. Not a kiwi. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> oh my gosh, he just walked in the room. If he heard you, then he may have thrown up that water. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll say hello to Forrest and we'll, uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, okay. Peter. Okay. Thanks, guys. Time for a quick break on Up For A Chat to share our favourite products. Dr. Peter Bruckner is an incredible speaker. He's also got some wonderful accolades under his belt and he will be part of our Nutrition Summit that we will be holding in Melbourne on March 9th. For more information, just go to www.thenutrition.academy to look for tickets and other speakers. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.